ride with me in my foul life. We back. What's going on, podcast audience? The Foul Life Podcast. Got a cool episode today. We're talking staying sharp, keeping your edge. Kershaw Knives, made in America, Oregon, USA. We love them. I think about knives a lot. I'm addicted to knives. I like to have them everywhere. On a clip in my pocket, in a sheath. Might have a fully knife, a straight blade, a fillet knife, a machete, a saw. Might have a steak knife. Might have all kinds of different blades, like the razor sharp blades that Kershaw's coming out with today. They're literally like being in a surgical room so easy to get the meat off the bone of big game fish waterfowl upland game i love everything about them today we have one of the engineers the product designers jim mcnair on the show thank you dominic aiello for setting it up jim is a knife nerd a knife genius i love talking with this guy i can't wait to get up to portland and visit the headquarters and watch this man and his crew work at kershaw we're truly honored to have him as the official knife of the foul life television the foul life podcast where the pavement in podcast and um when you think about their dedication and support of our community and our culture that's what matters to myself and our crew the most is that there are a lot of options out there at your retail locations for knives online for knives and I just want to get the message across. I want you all to keep supporting the partners and sponsors that support us. And Kershaw believes in the American hunter and fisher and gatherer and conservationist and provider, garden grower. We use knives in so much. You look in your tackle boxes and our blind bags and the consoles of our trucks and our boats, our UTVs and our glove compartments and our trucks, our cars, our work bags. We got knives everywhere. In our daily drawers, we have knives. Yes, safety first and foremost. Learn your knife. Know how to use your knife. Kershaw is always the leader in innovation and cutting edge, no pun intended, when it comes to offering the best portfolio out there in knives. And this man, Jim McNair, he knows his stuff. Y'all are going to love this podcast. Today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast is presented by Kershaw Knives. Look no further when you want to keep your edge and stay sharp, America. The episode is also brought to you by Rigid Industries. I truly believe in owning the night. When it's dark, I don't want to miss a thing. I want to see. Whether we're setting up decoys, whether we're in a boat, whether we're in our UTV, whether we're trying to access a farm, whether we're looking for a gate or a pin that was dropped, we want to make sure that we know exactly where we are and where we want to be. And when I go into a field in the morning to set up for Canada geese, everything looks different than it did the day before in the daylight. Sometimes it's smart to drive in there after they leave if you can get in there and not scare them and mark your plot, put a flag in the ground of where you want to set up on the high point, the vista, the apex. The fences look closer in the dark. The trees look closer. They 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 are closer. They might not look that way in the dark, but when you have the lights, these LED bars on your trailer, that all of the LED bars and the floodlights and the running lights and our bodyguard bumpers, these rigid industry LED lights are the leader for a reason. You might pay a little more, but there's a reason for that. They work. They last. I'm telling you, they are so innovative and they are on top of the game and they are the official light of the Foul Life TV and the Foul Life podcast, as well as where the payment ends podcast, Alex and Clinton Clay and the crew over them and all their big game hunts, predator hunts, turkey hunts, wherever they're at trapping, it doesn't matter. We're relying on Rigid. Thank you so much, Rigid Industries. My man Flippo over there. What's up? Bodyguard Bumpers is also a presenting sponsor of today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Kelly Grant, Malico, Paris, Texas. What's up? Made in America out of necessity. 
This family, this brand is second to none. We are truly honored to be friends. They feel like family to us, the Malakote family. We hunt with their brothers over at MF Waterfowl around Paris, Texas. We're actually going to be there again this January 2023. Going to be hanging out with Jordan and the boys over at MF Waterfowl, but it's bodyguard bumpers. I've been to the facility. We've been to their headquarters. You've seen it on the Fowl Life TV on the Outdoor Channel. These bumpers last the Baja bars on them, the front bumpers, the rear bumpers, room for your winch, room for all of your rigid industries, LED light bars, floodlights, running lights. The running boards are slick. Just look at them. Go online, bodyguardbumpers.com, on Instagram, at bodyguardbumpers, and check out what they're doing to Fords and Dodges and Chevys and Jeeps. Doesn't matter what year. Get in the bodyguard bumper game. Support an American manufacturer and creator and company and brand. Thank you to Bodyguard Bumpers for, again, being the official bumper of the Foul Life Television and the Foul Life Podcast, as well as our brothers and sisters over at Where the Pavement Ends Podcast, Clinton Clay Belding, Alex Crosby. This episode of the Foul Life Podcast is also brought to you by Four Wheel Parts. What is going on, my man, Corey, Kevin, the crew, headquartered out of Southern California, but don't let that fool you. Their retail locations all over the country are bad to the bone. Go look at the selection. Go talk to their employees, their associates, the know-how, the intellect, the intelligence they have for their product offerings, everything they offer on their shelves, their catalog, their online store, four-wheel parts is where you want to be. They offer rigid. They offer Mickey Thompson tires. They offer Lear. They offer Decked. They offer zero weight zero weight hitches they are the baddest hitches in the country they offer pro comp wheels and pro comp suspensions and lift kits and leveling kits i'm telling you we are in love with our partnership at four wheel parts they support the american hunter the outdoorsman the american outdoors woman the fisher the gatherer and of course the provider so check them out online fourwheelparts.com they are awesome when it comes to selection for all of your trucks your utvs atvs they got it going on. And last but not least, today's episode of the Foul Life Podcast, the Kershaw Knives episode with the man, the knife genius and knife nerd, Mr. Jim McNair, is brought to you by our friends, Paul Francis, the entire crew at Corning Ford, Corning, California, just north of Sacramento on I-5, right in the Chico area, right in the heart of duck hunting, goose hunting, deer hunting, bear hunting. Mountain lions are there, but we're not allowed to hunt them anymore. Why is that, Governor Newsom? Come on, y'all, get with it. But Corning is in the middle of farming and ranching and industrialism and all of the construction companies. They rely on Corning Ford for the biggest and largest selection of Ford Super Duty F-250, F-350 diesel trucks. They got the F-150 with the EcoBoost, the new Broncos, the new Bronco Sports. They got them. Thank you, Francis Hopping. Thank you, Mr. Paul. You guys are unbelievable when it comes to customer service and not to mention your service department is top-notch and just absolute know-it-alls when it comes to making sure our trucks stay on the road. So thank you to the official truck of the Foul Life Television in our 14th season of Benelli's The Foul Life, airing right now exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. Corning Ford is the official truck of the Foul Life TV, the Foul Life Podcast, and of course, again, Clinton Clay and Alex over at Where the Payment Ends. Check out all of our trucks. We all got them. Bubba just got his brand new rig and ride from Corning Ford. The Lear just went on it, getting ready to be lifted. It's going to be bad to the bone. So support these companies that support this podcast and these TV shows. We truly appreciate it. This is Jim McNair, the Foul Life Podcast, brought to you by our family at Kershaw Knives, made in America. I hope you all enjoy it. So um, are you an artist by trade? Could you draw a grizzly bear attacking a fisherman on a river? Or are you more of a mechanical jar to where you would draw a robot or a kind of a knife or that type of artist? Uh, actually, I did come up doing fine art drawing as a kid. I mean, that was the one thing I was ever good at. 
And, you know, somewhere in my, in my twenties, someone told me about industrial design, which I'd never heard of, which perfectly fit. Cause I, you know, I, I, I was, I was good at drawing, but I didn't want to be an artist and yeah, designing products was right up my alley. So I got, I got really, really, really lucky, really blessed, however you want to put it and was able to discover a way to actually market <laughs> the one skill I had. I really wasn't good at much else. So, so yeah, tech, I mean, we both Andrew and I are industrial designers by trade and we, we do start with sketches and then we bring them into CAD exactly like that. So we literally scan it into the computer and roughly trace our outline. And then it usually changes some from there. So, so before that process starts, is it your baby or is it board meetings in a room to where people are like, I'm picturing this blade, this angle, this handle, this grip, that kind of thing. And then you take it from there. Or have you just gone home at night and came back and been like, I drew this last night. I want to see how it plays out. Um, it's a little of both, but we, we essentially, we consider ourselves a sales driven company. So if something does well, we tend to make more of it. And so we, when we, when we start the process, we will have meetings with, with the sales team, with, with the director of sales and the sales managers. And we'll talk about what's doing well, what's not doing well, what are we seeing out there that's hot, but they don't typically come to me with like a sketch and say, I want it exactly like this. It's generally, it's generally our baby. Do you get a lot of, you know, as far as like upper management or the ownership group, is it to where you've earned the stripes now to where they just say, Hey, if Jim has it going on in his head, then we trust him. You have a lot of credibility in the marketplace now, Jim, to where your designs have proven themselves. You don't get a whole lot of pushback. Um, it's, it's always, it's always a, uh, I, I know I sound like the textbook, but it's always a team effort. So we typically will, will make up, I don't know, 10, 20 sketches and we'll, you know, depending on wh where we're at, we'll we'll make a pile of sketches and we'll bring them and we'll have a big meeting with the sales group and we'll all kind of look them over and see what we like, and what we don't like. And there's there's back and forth. So it's not 100 percent my vision uh, or Andrew's vision. We we come up with a bunch of ideas and we as a team kind of go over them and decide what what we're going to do and what we're not going to do. And it's it's not. But I mean, it's not totally micromanaged. Once we're working on a concept, we go in and we we come up with what we think it's going to be. Uh, particularly when when we get into CAD, um, there's a lot of we're lucky we we get we get a, we get to have a, a strong influence on what the product is. You know, what, there's always uh, some sign off after the fact, but we're we have a pretty free hand. Once talk to me a little bit. I don't want this just to be Q and A, but you've been with Kershaw how long, Jim? You've been there a while. You got pretty good tenure Ooh. here at Kershaw. Um, I think it's going to be twelve years this year. Twelve years. Um, product design. What is the biggest evolution that has changed the knife industry is it metal is it technology is it engineering is it the software that you can get detailed on has it changed so much to where you can just you know draw this up on a computer and get it machined so perfectly now is it cnc machines that have improved what's the biggest change in the last over a decade that you've seen you know you hit on a bunch of them actually um technologies have changed and the market itself has changed. I mean, it used to be that, I mean, and, and you know, you'll get lots of other opinions. People may say I'm not exactly on this, but it used to be that, you know, you had, you had hunting knives and you had pocket knives, like, like you had like a buck 110, you know, a, a lockback, brass bolsters, wood handles, clip point blade, and kind of a two-handed opening thing. You had traditional knives. 
And then somewhere in kind of the mid 90s, the idea of what we call a tactical knife became really popular. Um, and people like Ernest Emerson and, and Rick Hinder and a number of other people who, Bob Terzwala, people who were kind of early in that market kind of started creating what was considered more of a, more of a fighting knife. And it's, I, I hate to, I hate to limit it to just that because they, they became, they've become things that we carry every day. It became more of a style at some point. And so go, it went from just being more of traditional knives to being something that was a bit more modern, maybe a bit more urban. And so we, we, we do a lot of things based on that. So styling is one thing. I mean, just the, the concept of like a tactical knife, that was a big change in the market. And then um, one thing that our company is famous for is the concept of speed safe, which is the assisted opening knife. So it used to be that you had switch blades and you had manual knives and that was it. And so when speed safe came out, it was kind of this in-between thing where it feels like an automatic, it feels like a switch blade but it's not, it's legally a distinct thing and it works differently. And so, I mean, that's something I could, I could go into the technical details of why a speed safe or, or a assisted opening knife is not the same as, a, as an automatic or a switchblade, but that was a huge change in the market. And, and, it, and that's one big thing that our company was part of that changed the industry. The uh, the first thing I think of of knives all the time, and I've talked to Dominic about this, is you just have to have one. I mean, when you don't have one, it's one of those things where you you notice it in a hurry. Like it's like more important than my truck keys now because now with today's technology and trucks, you know, you just you could yeah. keep your key fob wherever mm -hmm. you want to hide it and be good to go with a keypad code. But a knife is like when you need it and you go there and it's not there, you go to get it and it's not there. You're like, dang it. <laughs> We keep them everywhere as hunters, as fishermen, ranchers, farmers, construct. I mean, you name any industry yeah. in the world, all the way down to medical, a sharp blade is important. Without like being conceited, I guess, why Kershaw? Why a is a knife a knife, Jim? I mean, there's, so there's a lot of knives on the market. You can go to any retail outlet and get a pretty good pretty good selection to choose from if that's fair to say yeah. um but why kershaw what is different why is it the culture is it the the materials is it the engineering why do i go into a retailer and pick up a kershaw knife without knowing about their reputation that's where i'm gonna throw you a curveball yeah no i don't and you know honestly i i don't want to make you feel bad but that's not too much of a curveball because that's that's something that, you know, I, it's funny because for me personally, I'm a knife enthusiast, always have been. I mean, since I was a kid, I mean, <laughs> my, my life story is kind of, it's kind of goofy. I mean, when I was eight years old, I was reading Blade magazine and I was, I'd go down to the basement. My dad had a bunch of wood and an old jigsaw and I would make these custom knives that I'd see in the magazine out of, out of wood. Cause I, cause I, I was so into them and I was, I was eight years old. I didn't have any money. And so being an enthusiast, you really you know, you're young and you're excited. And as you get into your, you get to be in your 15, 16, 20 years old, you can start affording these things. The concept of value comes in really strongly for you. So like for me as a kid, you don't have a ton of money, you know, even in my twenties when I was in college. And so I remember my first Kershaw was a chive, um, really small, one of our early, one of our earlier speed safe knives in the late nineties. And I remember just the price was right and it was American made 
and it was great quality and it had this new thing called speed safe which was the assisted opening action and it felt like a switchblade and it was so cool and so my my roundabout point that i'm getting to is that one thing that i'm still really proud of for us as a company is that we are big on providing the customer with value and quality at a reasonable price so you get a lot of bang for your buck you know we want to make sure that no matter what we're selling you it's going to be a quality product and it's going to be a, it's going to be a great value what does an entry level knife cost with Kershaw and where does this price point go to MSRP at, at suggested retail what am i going to see um, without anything being on sale depending on time of year the retailer where are we at for an entry level knife and then a, a advanced blade so i mean for certain things where we where we get real real low on the price, we might get down to like even a ten dollar MSRP for something that you might get us like a a special deal at Walmart or something like that. But typically, I'd say your entry level is twenty five bucks and up. And I, I I say that because you can buy a cheaper knife. You know, it kind of goes back to what you're saying like is a knife and just a knife. And you know, you can buy. You know, you can go to any sporting goods store and there'll be a There'll be a, a fishbowl display on the counter with a bunch of $5 knives that you can buy. And there's reasons that I would say I, I personally wouldn't buy one. Um, the quality is just under a certain price point. I don't, it, it's very difficult to get the quality right. It's just not there. And so there's kind of a price point we don't really play underneath because we want to provide you with a quality knife. And that's $25 you're saying? Is it Kershaw right. entry level is 25 bucks? That's a that's a ballpark, yeah. What but kind I mean, of quality am I getting with the Kershaw brand at $25? So $25, you'd be getting into like one of our starter series knives. You would be getting an import. Um, you'd be getting something with either a, a 4CR 14 steel or maybe an 8CR 13 MOV steel. Um, you'd be getting... So, so possibly speed safe, possibly manual action. Um, generally, two and a half, three inch blade. Um, injection molded handles, steel liners, solid. You'd get something that's solid and effective uh, and with something that'll do the job. But you're not necessarily getting fancy at that price point. Why do I need fancy if for a knife? I'm just cutting rope. I'm filleting. Now, are we going to get into each technical part of how we use knives? Because... I'm a knife nerd too. Like I have, I've, my uncle taught me a long time ago and my dad about knife collections and how you can never have too many. Okay. According to the Mr. Late, uh, great, the late, great, not late, the great Mr. Larry Potterfield that said late instead of Larry. Um, but I use a different one for a salmon. I use a different one for a duck breast. I use a different one for a, an elk. I use a different one for a right. trout. Like I, I use different ones for cutting rope, whatever it is. Right. Um, but without that being said, can you get a $25 knife to where at 40 years old, you can do most all of that without having to change up blades or go to the next level? I mean, if we're talking pure performance, there are always going to be knives that excel at certain things. Like you were saying, like if, if you were, tr if you wanted to go fillet a fillet a salmon with a, uh, with a $25 folding knife, it's not going to go as well. Right, you when you want a fillet knife, you want something that's got some length so you, you can get through the whole fish in one swipe. You want that flexibility so you can work along the ribs. Then there, are, so in that case, like for some things like that, like I would say no. I I I would argue that you probably want something more specific. But for a general use pocket knife, you can do a lot of things with that. You can cut an apple. You can open boxes. You can you can cut tape. You can open letters. You can cut strings. 
you know, I mean, all the times I've had to cut a little, those little plastic tags off my kids' clothes. I mean, a general use pocket knife will do the majority of your tasks. And then I feel like there are situations like fishing, like hunting. I mean, I, I don't, I don't hunt as much as I used to, but I used to hunt deer when I was a kid. And so when your hands are wet and they're slippery and they're covered with blood, there's a point where having a simple rugged fixed blade with a grippy handle and a sharp cutting edge, it, it's again, it's, it's not, people do it. I, I get emails all the time where people say, oh, I took my Kershaw Blur, one of, you know, one of our really popular assisted opening folding knives. Like, oh, I, I skinned a bunch of deer with this and people do it. But <laughs> I mean, having a specialized tool for the job can make it more pleasant and make easier cleanup, simplify things when you're out in the cold and it's 30 degrees out. So I don't know if I'm answering your question exactly, but no, you, you are a hundred percent. I'm just, I, I'm trying to figure out the mindset of going into purchasing a knife because you know, it's not an intimidation factor. It's a, what am I really getting? How do I educate myself on that? And I know that Kershaw has done a great job in showing the in consumer, the potential customer, what our knives can be used for, right? There's a whole menu yeah. of knives out there. Do you want one in a sheath? Like I see sitting on your desk. Do you want one with a belt loop? Do you want a folding pocket knife? Do you want a straight blade? There's all kinds of different angles and curves that Kershaw offers in their blades. Um, the more and more that I get into this living off the land mentality. And I know you mentioned that you don't hunt as much as you used to. I hunt a lot. We eat yeah. a lot of wild game, but we're also butchering and processing a lot. And I, I talked to this about Dominic. I talked about this with Dominic, Jim, is the most dangerous knife is a non-trusty, dependable knife with a dull blade. Like, right. there's nothing worse than having to force your way into uh, uh, cutting a zip tie or cutting a rope or yeah. skinning a deer. There's nothing worse than forcing that, right? A, a yeah. good knife guides you, right? You just have to put a little pressure on there. Um, talk to me a little bit about the Kershaw mentality of sending them out the door ready to use the, the sharpness of that blade and your mentality about why a dull blade is way more dangerous than a sharp blade. Okay. So, I mean, we make knives. That, that's what we do. We make cutting tools and we make fancy ones. We make cheap ones. We make in between ones, but at the end of the day, a knife is meant to cut. It's meant to either to pierce or to cut. And if it doesn't do that well, it's failed. And so for us, that's a huge thing that we want to that we want to hang our hat on that our knives are sharp. So we we make sure that whenever they go out the door, that our and that's one of those things. That, again, I'm I'm kind of backtracking, but of all the jobs in the factory, one of the one of the, the most difficult ones to train for is sharpening. It's such a crucial task that to get that hair popping edge on on a blade every time. We have people and we really we really try to retain those people because it's a very it's a very specific and important skill. But so yeah, every time we get a knife coming out of the factory, we want we want to make sure it's sharp. And when we hear customers say, Oh, I got a Kershaw on it wasn't sharp enough, that really concerns us because that's that's our reputation. And at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Does the knife cut? Does it hold an edge? What when you start talking about the reputation of sharpness? Talk to let's let's talk about, you know, to the listeners of how is this determined? I've always wondered, like, you know, I've asked country music songwriters, how do you know the song's done? And they just go, you just know. 
You just know. So like you're, you're reading, tell me the science or the technology, the engineering behind, how do you know when it's done and that knife is ready to go out the door and it's got that edge that you want? So, I mean, when you sharpen a knife, there's, there's kind of two stages. Um, it's something that not, not everybody understands. I imagine if you work with knives a lot, you probably understand this, but you're, when you first sharpen a, a knife, you're looking to first raise a burr along the cutting edge. So you, you have your cutting edge, and if you're looking kind of down the down the the center of it like this, if you're looking right down the cutting edge, you'd kind of see that a little bit of a, a V-shaped profile. So when you when you remove that material, it, it kind of builds almost like a bead along the edge, what we call a burr. And then the second step of that, the stropping of the blade, is where we break that burr off, and that leaves us with that shaving sharp edge. And so typically the way we test that is we have we have stacks of very thin it's kind of it's kind of like newsprint and our sharpeners can take that and just they have a technique where they can just whittle off little bits of that paper and once it does it cleanly and without snagging they know it's ready to go they set it aside they grab the next one so it's a real simple process and um typically when i pick up one of one of our knives it's a it's an industry hazard. You end up with not, without not without much hair on your arms because you, <laughs> you have a tendency to just kind of go, oh, does it shave? Yep, it shaves. And, and you know, that's reason, it. You just know. That tends to be the standard. Is yeah. there a way to uniform them all? To make them uniformly sharp? Yes. Like, is every knife the exact same when it leaves? Now, I'm not talking every model, but one certain skew, you know, let's take the whatever you say, the blur, whatever one you want to talk about. Is everyone uniform when it leaves the factory? So they are sharpened by hand, so they're technically no. They they are they're they're meant to be a fairly specific angle, um, and of course now you know, that that number is escaping me. But it's but it's a but there's a there's a specific angle that we're aiming for, and we're we're roughly there because we are sharpening by hand. So if if it's not sharp enough, they go back and they do it again. And, and worst case scenario, if they mess up a blade, we replace it, put a new blade in, they do it again. But it's hard to say. I mean, I understand what you're saying. It's it's not going to be if you put a if you went and you looked at it under a microscope, you'd see there's a little bit of variation. But I will say that the sharpness of our knives is very consistent, and that consistent. really comes through the, the training of those operators that sharpen them. I want to come up and see that operation. That's yeah. what I, um, I've always I've always told people that I'm very envious of one job in the world. It's probably more than that. I just haven't given it much thought, but I'm most envious of what my godfather did. He's a butcher, and I'm very envious of yeah. pe- of men and women that can butcher animals with the precision and knowing every cut that needs to be made with their knife. And if you talk about an individual or a profession that depends on knives and takes pride in their knives and their sheaths and everything, it's a it's a butcher. And I watched this growing up, whether it was our lambs or our cows, our steers you know, whatever we were butchering, our deer, our elk, our moose, whatever, Lauren, who who I talked to today, which is weird, we're talking about him, but it was amazing. So I just saw, sat there in awe. And I and that's how I would be in that factory is like, man, I want to be a, I want to be the best knife sharpener I can be. Like you could say, oh yeah, I've been sharpening knives for years, but I want to know like, am I a good knife sharpener? I get an edge, yeah. but really what am I trying to maintain? What am I trying to get to consistently? And those are the questions that go through my head about knives of this is what sets Kershaw apart from that fishbowl of knives on the counter is that you guys have a culture and a reputation and a, a level of greatness to achieve on every knife that goes out that door. So when I, when I pick up a Kershaw, it feels different to me, right? It's a, it's a tool. 
It's something that is a part of what we do. It's not something that's just sitting there. You got yeah. the my yeah. my godfather a long time ago taught me and my uncle and my dad knives are who you are. Knives are part of you. And you do, you might have a whole bunch of different ones, right? Like you have, you're an enthusiast, <laughs> but man, I'm telling you, you always find your go-to. You always find the one that really performs for, you, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, I think that that's what I see in Kershaw. So I've been talking to Dominic. Like I, I really got to get up to the factory. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the process though, because your, your expertise comes from the very beginning stages of the knife you're seeing right. fit so what 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 does that entail as far as when it goes to cad and you put it into the software take take me through that process from there is this a lot of cnc machines you say that they're hand sharpened by hand but what is the right. process leading up to that okay so like i said andrew and i are kind of the tip of the spear so we we come up with the sketches we come up with the overall design we approve it, the, the team all looks at it and says, yeah, this is something we wanna invest our time in. Cause our, cause our time is money, including Andrew and I. Like if it's not something the team believes in, we don't wanna be doing it. And so we take our sketch, we scan it through Photoshop and bring that into, we, we bring that into SolidWorks. And then from there, we actually create flat line work with different layers. So we can, we make the, the outline of the handle, the outline of the blade, and then we, we create the the lock geometry we create the shape of the tang of the blade and we create the shape of the lock where it where the lock bar comes and slides up against it and we have essentially some rules that we follow to make sure that that mechanism is strong enough that it's it's designed the right way that we have enough engagement on the lock tang so it's not going to slip and that's stuff that it's it's kind of i hate to say but kind of tribal knowledge that that was handed down to me and then i've i've shown to andrew and then you know Someday Andrew will show to another designer. And so we, we make that flat line work and then working in SolidWorks, we then take each of those individual, the sketch of the handle, the sketch of the blade, the sketch of the backspacer, and we, we make individual parts. So in SolidWorks, the way it works is you take that sketch and it allows you to actually extrude it out into a, a, a 3D part that you can turn around and look at. And that's, that's, the, that's the amazing part of that software. So then we, we at that point then, we create a 3D model based on usually between 15 and 35 parts, depending on what we're building, um, that is accurate to what we machine. So Andrew and I are not machinists, but we have to know enough about the tools they use, the machines they use, the tolerances they can keep, um, the sizes and, and, and abilities of the cutters. So we're kind of... We're, we're kind of like junior machinists in ourselves in that we don't run machines. We, you know, it's not what we do, but we have to understand the process well enough to design something exactly as we're going to machine it. And then we generally check it with people in the factory and we go back and forth to make sure we're not creating something that can't be done or is inefficient. Um, and so then from there, it gets handed over to our, our amazing R and D department and Eric and his team, they, they, take our, they take our models and they make them reality. So is, they say that, you know, you being a knife enthusiast, right? Sometimes you hear, well, when you work with something you love so much, sometimes it becomes kind of not as fun as it once was. Hey, will you hunt for a living? Is it still fun going out there yeah. to hunt? Is it used to be, um, is it a celebration when you nail it? 
Like when that comes oh, yeah. out, and are you guys celebrating these knives, or are you kind of like, well, I've been there, done that, or do you get fired up like you're having <laughs> another kid every time you every time you bring another one of these to the market? I mean, you know, we're we're pretty lucky because we we rarely ever have to do a project that we really hate. Um, we rarely ever have to do a project that we don't believe in. And no, it's it's kind of remarkable because I mean, I'll admit, you know, I've been doing this for oh, better part of 15 years in the knife industry. And I still get excited. Uh, I mean, it, it becomes more challenging. It's hard not to repeat yourself after a certain amount of time, but I still get excited, especially, especially oddly enough, like people think, oh, you must love sketching. But my favorite part is the problem solving. When you get into SolidWorks, when you're trying to make your dream a reality, you're going in there and you're, you're trying to not compromise and you're doing, you, you end up coming with how do I, how do I achieve this thing? I, I know this is a difficult thing to do, but what's the right way to do it? How do I approach this problem from a different angle? And no, I mean, I, I, I have a lot of times where I'm, you know, it's like the eighties fist pump at the ceiling. Like, yeah, I got it. And it's, it's like it's the end of the breakfast club once in a while. I'm here just <laughs> jean jacket and you're just fired yeah, up. Exactly. Just, you know, holding the radio up at the sky. Like we got this one. How long can you have a career as a knife designer? Because can you improve on what you have now? Are there, are there new materials being mined as we speak? I'm taken out of the mountains that we're going to see knives made out of. I just had an eye surgery, Jim, and they were, they cut my, my eyes to replace my lenses with diamond blades. Um, are we going to see Kershaw diamond blade series? Like how, what, how much more can you improve on a freaking knife? I've never had a problem with a Kershaw knife. I hope uh, my question makes sense because I sit no. here going like how many, how many, t- more knives can be revolutionized or evolved out of what's already been done and out there. And I know that you could say, well, you could say the same for tires and you could say the same for shotguns and bow and arrows. It's like, how much can you improve a bow and arrow that shoots 400 feet a second? All right. Every one of these brands are shooting. You might as well have a gun, but what, what, (laughs) what is, what, what would be like, a, a simple answer for that? Like, yes, everything is always improving and we're always trying to push the envelope. I think there are things that are incremental and there are things like it's the big changes. You're right. The big changes are less common. Um, big, big, big things like I, like I brought up speed safe before speed safe was a big thing. It was, it was a concept that didn't exist before the idea of wait, we can make an assisted knife. It's, it's not, it's not something that I'm fully opening with both my hands with no springs. And it's not a, it's not a switch blade. It's something in the middle. Um, there have been a number of things like that. There's some there's some locking mechanisms that I think have been revolutionary that have changed the way we do things and and created a new way of doing it. And there are always people trying to innovate. There's always people coming up with new ideas, but the truly revolutionary ones don't happen as often. You know, a lot of what we do is incremental. We're making it a little better. We've learned a bit more about heat treat. We There's a new metallurgy and this new steel manages to hold an edge a little bit longer when we test it or it's a little more corrosion resistant. I mean, it's, it's things like that. And so I, I hate to say it, a knife is still a knife, you know, we, and I'm just grateful that people keep on buying them. You know, we keep on coming up with new ideas and people keep on buying them because yeah, it's man's oldest tool. You hit on something very important there. And this is going to be something to where you may be able to talk on it. You may not, but there are things, there are companies out there that I would, Caterer guys, how do I say that word? Caterer, I'm not very good at that word. It, it gets me every time, Jim. How do you say it? <laughs> Categorize. Cater, 
Say it one more time. <laughs> categorize. 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 The G's first. Categorize as Me Too companies and brands. Okay, there's companies out there that just look at something and be like, oh, we can make that. Um, you, you can't, like, tell me that you come up with new ideas and be original and not say that you do hold, like, do you think about your competition? Do you stay in your lane every day? Or do you get a little bit irritated when you see some of your ideas and your expertise? Because let's, let's not fake it. Like there's other knife designers out there that are probably on your level, right? You're not sitting here trying to tell the world that you're the best knife designer and jar of all time, but there are me too <laughs> companies out there. <laughs> yeah, you just tell, I'll tell them that too. But there are me too companies out there that, that copycat, original ideas. Now, how do you stay away from that in the knife market? Kind of goes along with my last question because a knife is a freaking knife. And then there's different materials and different handles and different grips. Like we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, but how do you stay away from influence? I guess is the question, Jim, if you being the guy, how do you stay away from, well, I saw this, I'm going to try that. You know, or do you see like a marble from when we were kids and go like, oh man, could you imagine a knife blade that looked like that swirly color in a marble when we were playing boulders when we were a kid? Like, is that how the ideas pop up? Or do you stay away from any chance of being influenced by a competitor? I try really hard, actually. As as much as that's impossible, that's that's oddly enough, that was something I had to do at a point in my career. Um, Fairly early on, I realized I was getting influenced by things that I saw. And I mean, like I said, I'm an enthusiast. I, I used to be all over the forums and Facebook wasn't a Facebook and Instagram weren't a thing at the time, but I used to be on the forums and you know, what's the newest thing? What's the cool thing? What, what's this company doing? What's that company doing? I mean, I followed Kershaw, I followed Benchman, I followed whoever was doing something cool. And there was a point where I had to kind of divorce myself from that, where I had to stop seeking it out. I mean, there, it's, it's a weird it's so backwards, Chad. If I really, if I see a knife maker and I really like the stuff they do, for instance, like on Instagram, I won't follow their page. I may occasionally check in and see what they're doing, but I won't follow their page. And that's specifically because I don't want to be influenced. I don't want to have to look back and go, oh, that was their idea. And I got it in my head because we do. We talk about this a lot. The idea that yeah, people can steal ideas, people can trace things, but the truth is, I'm sad to say, as a designer, it's easy enough to see something and have it float in the back of your head, and you don't realize you're doing it, and you try to catch it. You, know, you try to make sure, like we we will throw sketches out. We'll go and say, oh, that looks like this, that looks like that. That's my greatest fear, to be honest with you, as a designer. I don't ever want to rip anybody off, and it's really hard to walk that line. Where you, on the one hand, it's kind of nothing new under the sun. But on the other hand, you really don't want to do something. It's like, oh, it's just like that one. But um, you could all. But there is also the mindset that, like, I'm. This might be very off topic, or I'm comparing it to stand-up comedy. I've yeah. heard a comedian do kind of the same skit as a comic that I heard live or on video or whatever, and I'm like, it's the same idea. Yeah. I wonder if they went. I wonder if they made a mistake and went and watched this comic. And then tried to do the same thing, but maybe they did it in a redneck version instead of this version or whatever. <clears throat> but that influence is everything because you have to have influencers or inspiration in life. But I kind of I, I wanted to ask you that because it would be hard for me if you're sitting at your desk every day and you follow 15, you know, 20 knife makers out there. Right. Or you're watching all these Discovery Channel shows or whatever network is playing a, a, a black, you know, there are gay, there are shows out there about knives and stuff like that. 
Right. It's it's a weird it's a it's a weird phenomenon of like how do you not take influence that you've seen because you've had your hands on so many knives in the past and I are you so disciplined that you want everything that you put forth at Kershaw to be yours? That's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, I, of course I do. I, I want it to be unique, but at the same time, sometimes you're doing something that, oh, I know it's, I know it's a, I know it's going to be a clip point blade. I know it's going to look a bit like this has been done a thousand times. So it's kind of a hard question to answer because of course I want everything I do to be unique, but I don't want to make it. You can make something that's unique and it's not good. Does that make sense? Like, Oh yeah. hundred percent. There, there's a line between making something that's unique and cool. And yeah, there, sometimes you make something unique and there's a reason nobody's done it. So I don't want to, I don't think I'm really answering your question there, but no, you um, are, but my goal is always to make something unique, something new, something that we haven't seen before. And the reality is it's very difficult to make something truly new. So you do the best you can. Oh, I've never done this texture pattern before. I've never done this. I'm going to tweak that blade shape, but, I mean, to, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I'd be, I'd be, I wouldn't want to be so arrogant as to say I made a completely new blade shape that no one's ever done before, never been done before. You know, it's, it's just kind of, there's, there's a lot out there and I, and I, I'm, I'm careful of how I word that because I, it's, it's really easy to say, oh, I think I've done this new thing and, and no, you did Someone else did it. It's, it's been done before. So can you build knives from hand? Can you, if you didn't have, Kershaw backing you with all their technology machining? Could you go in your garage and mill a knife and and do everything from A to Z from building out the woodwork on a handle? Or is your artistic level more in the drawing and the idea part of it? I believe that I could, uh, I believe that I could learn. Um, but I mean, I, I've played with grinding knives. I, I do, I do have some hand skills um, growing up having built things and worked on things. I'm not, I'm not any kind of master mechanic, but I can, I can change my own oil. You know, I can swap out an alternator. I can't, I can't. So you just brought up a good point. I'm not very manly. Thanks a lot, Jim. Thanks a lot. Okay. Look at, we, I see some knives on your desk there. Are these stuff that you can show me? Are these, are these items that we can look at? Cause I have a few product questions. Do you have any of your favorites sitting around there that you've designed? Oh, you know, I was just digging around and I don't have a lot here today, but there's some things I can show you. Yeah. Okay, I want to go over. Show me a knife real quick of one that you that you really like using. Do you have one there? Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me see. I mean, well, I mean, the one in my pocket right now is is kind of a variation because it's uh, it's something where we're testing a new steel. But this is our our eighteen twelve model, and it's uh, it normally has olive green handles, which is actually my preference, and it has a what we call a composite blade, where it's two pieces that are that are braised welded together in kind of a puzzle piece pattern. This is just a prototype that we put together with a with a standard blade, so we could test the new blade steel we're working with. But I'm actually really fond of this particular knife. As I've gotten older, I like something that's slim, something easy to carry. It's kind of it's kind of the the feeling. It's it's kind of like when you talk about concealed carry. It's like you want the one that's on you. You want the one you'll actually carry. And as pocket knives go, yeah, this is one that I'll I'll keep on me, and I won't sit it on my desk because it's like I've gotten to this point with my keys where and the advent of these giant key fobs, I sit on it, and it's this big lump under my butt, and I end up having to slap it on my desk. 
Well, what happens? I walk out to my car and I don't know my keys. I did this when I bought this car. I did this for like six months. I'd walk out to the parking lot and I wouldn't have my keys. So the same thing applies to a pocket knife. I, this is a size that fits my hand, but it's slim enough and light enough that I'll always carry it. And I won't, it doesn't weigh me down. So, I mean, I guess that's a bit of personal philosophy and everybody's different, but. Um, Tell me the, put that up there one more time, Jim, please. Yeah. And show, talk to me about the design of the actual blade. <clears throat> why, why this shape? What is that considered in the Kershaw family of blades? And why do you, why do you prefer this style saying it's one of your go-to knives? Um, in this case, it's something to do with, as much as I like a drop point blade where, where the blade comes up a little higher and it's a little more of a traditional shape. There's something to be said for a lot of the, the dumb things we do every day, opening Amazon boxes and cutting tape and cutting tags, opening letters. When you have that point droop down a little bit, it just makes it a little, a little less angle on your wrist when you're, when you're slicing and doing delicate work. Um, gosh, it's almost like the blade on a caper. And it's just, for whatever reason, having that little bit of that lower tip and that this is a fairly slim blade, so it's a real nice slicer. So this, for example, this is not a survival knife. This is not something that you'd want to be stuck in the woods with. It's not something you'd want to try to pry a door open with. It, there's there's lots of things you wouldn't do with this knife, but for every day in my in my in my daily life, it does pretty much everything I want it to do. Two questions on that knife. You put your hold it again like you just were. Would you ever hold that knife now? You, if you were opening a box, you had your index finger straight down across the blade. Okay. Yeah. What do you refer to that grip as? Was there is there a reference to where people could look that grip up that you would tell them? I would call it choking up on it, I guess. Choking I mean, up on I, it. So yeah, he's I mean, got, putting my finger on the back of the blade to give myself more control. Okay, so control. So Jim's got his his middle finger, his ring finger, and his pinky around the 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 handle of the knife with yeah. his thumb along the the where the blade meets the the casing and then his index finger is laid out across the top of the blade almost to the end of the point giving him control so if you took your hand like a baseball bat and wrapped it around the grip of that knife is there any control in that for any application with that type of blade is that is that an unsafe grip for that type of blade to do you know daily chores with it no, I mean, I, I would do different things holding it this way. I mean, if, I, if I'm wrapping four fingers around it, like like, car, like whittling a stick. Like you if you're camping like and you're whittling a stick to, 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 to roast a marshmallow. Now, whittling is one of those exercises where you learn really fast if you've got a comfortable handle or not. But, right? you, would still have your, but you would still have your thumb on the blade. To, in that case, you, you, it's funny. You, my brain is already going, all right, I'm, 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 I'm peeling wood. I'm encountering a lot more resistance than I would normally cutting into a piece of cardboard or whatever. So yeah, I guess I'm, I'm bracing the blade there with my thumb. Okay. So now can you, can you hold that blade? Is there any application for holding that blade any other way in your hand? Do you ever turn the blade this way? Up, where, upside down? Yep. No. Now you have it. If the blade is looking straight out at me, but oh, turn the sideways. knife. Yes, but turn the knife around like this so the blade's coming out this way. No other oh, way. Oh, backwards. Like that. Now, is this is this a grip that would be more characterized as a fighting position in an uh with a fighting knife? Absolutely. That's a Got fighting it. grip. Okay. So, this this grip right here is comfortable, but it's it would never be really used in what that knife right there that you're talking about. What's the knife called? 
I'm sorry. This one's a, uh, called the 1812. Called the dividend. The dividend. Yeah. Dividend 1812. There's no reason to ever have that reverse grip on this knife. I. Or I is there self defense? So. <laughs> we probably don't need to get at, into that. At risk that. of sounding kind of mealy mouth, um, we work really hard in an industry where 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 people well in a world where people tend to classify knives as weapons. We work really hard to let people know that it's a tool. But knives also have a self-defense. Knives also have a, a use for self-defense. They absolutely exist for that reason as well. So, you know, <laughs> I guess it, when, when you get lawyers involved, it gets a little more muddy. But we want people to know, like, primarily, like, the majority of us aren't going to be in a self-defense situation. We may be lucky and never have one in our entire life. Um, I will tell you, in a shady neighborhood, if I, I, I feel better having a knife in my pocket. I yeah, have something, and that does, uh, that that would speak to self defense. So, I got trained. I went out and got trained in self defense. If that did happen, right? Like, how do yeah. you hold a knife? How do you be prepared? It's not to instigate. It's not to be ignorant. It's right. preparation. But I just I, I'm I'm always curious about nice knife grips and knife positioning because I watch so many people when we're cooking and they get in there and they cook with us and I'm like oh god like it just like makes it like gives you the heebie jibbies right you're just like oh please stop but maybe they got trained in that style right like maybe they maybe they got I'm you know like there's things that you don't do you don't draw you back draw cutting. Yeah. yeah, stuff like that. There's there's things you learn about blades and how you position them when you come up. And I, I just think that it's so important to learn it because when you when you learn to use a knife the right way and you can get very skilled with it, I'm not saying mistakes happen, but man, is it such a glorious operation to yeah. use that knife the way that it was intended to, to do things the right way. Yeah. Um, so um, when you when you're talking about the materials on on those knives that that you have on your desk right there yeah. are we pretty consistent across the board with that 25 dollar to 100 dollar level that the handles are a lot of the same materials or do we get different weights and different textures the higher we get in price points is it get to be more user-friendly based on the grip i really am interested in the grip right now because i love the grip on my kershaw knives there's yeah. they're the, my favorite so okay talk to me a little bit about how grips are related to the price point or the design of the knife. Okay, let me see if I can find uh, real quickly. Okay, here we go. So on a less expensive knife, and this is an older pattern. Oh, you know what, that, that's not even one we make. Hang on a second, that's, sorry. I'm, I'm, going through, I'm going through sample drawers here. I'm just looking for something with a plastic handle. Well, I can show you the handle. So this is a, this is a knife we make called the Kuro, um, and it has a a textured glass filled nylon handle. Um, if I turn it sideways, you can kind of see it's got a bit of a palm swell and it's a little thicker. It's actually a pretty comfortable knife to hold. Um, it's not a real current model for us. It's just the first thing I could grab, but um, it has a it has a four it has a three position pocket clip. It all it all can be moved around. But the biggest thing about this is this is a relatively inexpensive knife. Uh, it has an HCR 13 blade. And like you mentioned, the grip, it has this rounded glass-filled nylon handle. It's actually quite comfortable. And it's actually also quite light. It's really not too bad to put in your pocket. So that as we go, go into lower price points, that's one option that's a little bit lighter. Um, 
On the other hand, we make a, we also make a lot of knives in that price point where they have a solid steel handle. Steel is relatively cheap. It's quite strong. It makes it makes a, a very effective handle and a very effective lock. Um, but we tend to try to make those a little smaller and a little slimmer because the steel is so heavy. So at that point, you're paying less for the knife, but you are getting something that weighs a little more. Um, you can also like my dividend here. This one, um, this one became a little higher end knife, but it used to be more of an entry level USA knife. And it's got aluminum handles with a thinner steel liner. You can kind of see that if I move yeah. it closer to the camera, a thin aluminum handle with two, th with two thin steel liners. And so the one liner is just supporting the front handle and keeping the, uh, the torsion bar in for the speed safe mechanism. The other one is actually creating the locking mechanisms. That's, that's actually, it's got a bend and a set to it. So when you open the blade, it pops over and it blocks the knife from closing it. It can't go back into the slot. It can't rotate back into here because it's, it's blocked. Um, so aluminum is relatively inexpensive as well. I mean, it's, it's not the cheapest option. A, a plastic handle will always be cheaper than injection molded glass filled nylon. But an aluminum handle is an economical way to make a knife that's slim and light and easy to carry. So that's part of what I like about this knife. So now you can get into other materials, like when you get into a real high-end knife, you get into things like titanium and carbon fiber, and those are incredibly strong and incredibly light, but the, the base material is a lot more expensive and the, uh, the, time and, the time and effort it takes to machine it is much greater. So along with that, the <clears throat> cost goes up. Costs go up. So if you're on a seminar stage and you're talking to a, a bunch of future knife owners, where do we start? I want to end this conversation. I want to have you back on because I'm very interested in all of this. I want to, I want to learn the knife game more and more. But where do we start as a knife owner for the best experience? Do you have to ask them what their budget is? Or can you say, can you say, can you be budget conscious of, okay, for a hundred dollar bill, one tank, of, well, a, a third of a tank of gas these days, um, <laughs> do you, can you do? That's funny. <laughs> can you, uh, can you give me an idea where, what we recommend for the, the grip, what you would personally, you're on a seminar okay. stage in Portland. $100 it's a big, bill. A hundred dollar bill. What what do I buy from the Kershaw portfolio? Um, in that case, there's actually you for that for that amount of money, you can get something U.S. made, which generally, if you can afford it, would be my rec my rec my recommendation. Um, I mean, the general my my general recommendation would be buy buy the the best quality you can afford. Um, again, there's when we get into the really higher end stuff, there's going to be a point of diminishing returns, but I'd say hundred dollars bang for your buck. You get one of our blurs. You can get one of our leaks. Um, I think the dividend is just a bit more than that. It might be 120 ish. Um, but we have a lot of really solid USA made knives that are in that hundred dollar price point, And that would be a great place to start on the Kershaw lineup. Um, when you start moving into the higher end Kershaw's and into the zero tolerance lineup, you do get, performance and you get features and you get a lot of things you just your 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 price goes up a lot as well and as i've learned in my life we all have our things that we're excited about you know I, I, my, my nephew likes sneakers and you know and wants a 300 pair of sneakers 
And that's not my thing. So it feels weird to me, but I own $300 knives. And there's a lot of people that think, why on earth would you own a $300 knife? So we each, we each make our priorities. And, um, but like to answer again, answering your question, if you're on a limited budget and let's see at hundred bucks, I would say us, we have USA made Kershaw's like our leaks and our blurs that are a, a great value and be a great place to start. I appreciate you being on leaving the podcast, Mr. Jim. What do we, what were the top two, top two performance-based traits of a knife? What are the top two that we need to look to look into and be conscious or conscientious? I don't know what word I'm looking for again. I'm out of it today. I apologize. No, no. What do we have to be conscientious of in choosing a knife? Because any company can tell me the values there. If I don't know the reputation of a company and I don't know right. what I'm what I'm really putting in my hand, what do I look for in that knife when I'm going to buy a knife? The top two things that you could tell a con- in consumer, what do you look for? Does it have to be all the way made in America? Does it have to do I have to look into the components that hold the blade into the handle? Is that going to break off if I use it the wrong way? What is the warranty like on these knives? Like what would I look for in becoming a customer for life in Kershaw or any other knife manufacturer out there when I'm going to buy a knife? I would say going with a company that that it's hard to make it's hard to break it down into two things, but it, the just go general, ahead. You just just tell me then. You don't need to say two things. The, the, the general gist of it would be to get something with 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 a with a good blade steel, with a with a heat treat that's been well done. Because you can have the best blade steel in the world, and if you blow the heat treat, it's it's worthless. And yeah, I, you did touch on something there as well. Um, having a great warranty. Because if you're a lifetime customer and you want that to be a lifetime product, you want to have a warranty to back that up. And we have a great warranty, and I and I'm 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 not too proud to say that. Like I, I'm really I love what our warranty department does every day. They work so hard, and they they make sure that our customers are taken care of. And we really try to make sure, no matter what the situation. I mean, heck, sometimes things happen. Sometimes a person breaks the blade off, and it's their fault. We still will offer them an option. Say, well, it's going to cost a couple of bucks, but we keep it reasonable, and let's get a new blade in your knife. Let's get you back. Let's get you back to functional. <laughs> So that relationship with the customer on top of, you know, having a, great, a good blade steel and a good heat treat, good blade geometry, you know, I'm sorry, if it's quarter inch thick, it may not always slice the way you want it to, but, and then having that, having a great warranty to, to back you up because as much as I'd like to say, no company is perfect. Things happen, you know, it's, it's not a perfect world. And in my mind, the measure of a true company is how, how, do, how do they take care of you when something goes wrong? And so we try really hard to do that, to, to treat people well when something goes wrong. I'm taking notes on what you said because I want to continue it on our next conversation. I want to come and shadow you like an intern. Like I want to um, live. <laughs> you won't learn I, much. Why? <laughs> I don't. I can't draw, but I should. I could sure learn the knife process. It's very. Kershaw is just an awesome company. Well, you're always Oregon. welcome. I'd love to give you a tour. I'm coming. I promise I'm coming right. up there. I'm going to hang out with you and Dominic. We're going to, we're going to hang out. Maybe I don't really know the, what does Portland have for food? What is uh, Portland's part of, a foodie town? Portland's really, uh, that's, that's but, kind of what they do. 
but so, they don't yeah. have a they don't have the fish market like Seattle. They don't have the chowder like the Bay. They don't have Italian food like New York. Um, I'm just wondering, what are they known for? Because they got to have great seafood, right? Yeah, we got good seafood being close to the coast. Um, gosh, we're known for variety. I mean, I hate to say it, like I, I don't even get up there that much because I've, I've got small kids and they're they don't they're like little <laughs> they're little tornadoes in a restaurant, but. <laughs> Um, but I mean, like there's places like there's, there's a great breakfast place that makes fantastic fried chicken and waffles. And there's, I mean, I could tell you about a, a, a little, a little Middle Eastern place that makes fresh non bread. And I, I mean, there's, is everything from Mexican food to great donuts to you name it. I mean, the, so we, it's a foodie we, town. It's kind well, of what, what they do. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of good food. And, we're gonna come um, hang. Well, I'll, I'll come up there and hang, take a tour, live in your life for a couple of days. I want to keep learning. Gain ten pounds. I get back in the gym. I truly appreciate you being on. Yeah. Um, I just I love the idea of a good knife, and I when it comes into fruition and you hold it in your hands, they become addicting. They truly do. And I talk about this all the time in what we do, Mister Jim McNair from Kershaw, Portland, Oregon, United States of America. You gotta take pride in your equipment Absolutely. when you use it. When you store it, when you clean it, when you maintain it, you put it up on the shelf. I get giddy. I get giddy. Like when I put my knives back, like, you know, I'm using a bunch of the Kai kitchen knives, right? And when I put them back in the sheath and they're all cleaned up and shined and oiled and da-da-da-da-da, I'm like laying in bed and I'm like, I got a vision for a, a pork shoulder roast tomorrow and I can't wait to see this knife perform. I truly think like that. Like I know that's nerdy, but like when I when I don't have my knives on me, I'm like thinking like, I want to do some stuff with a knife. And then when you like open your center console during duck season and I see him in there, I'm like, where have you been all my life? We need to, we need to go to work. Right. They're like waiting in there for me to take them out. It's kind of like when I open my gun safes and my Benelli's are there and they're like, where you been all these time yeah. during summer break. Right. <laughs> so I appreciate what you do. Thank you for being here. Jim McNair, product specialist, designer, absolute engineer, and just a knife guru. Like that's what Mr. Jim does a dozen years with Kershaw. I truly appreciate you being on the Foul Life Podcast. Obviously, this episode of the Foul Life Podcast was brought to you by our friends and family at Kershaw. Uh, we're just honored. We're honored. I don't say we're humbled to be with Kershaw. I want to live in humility all the time, but we're honored to be part of this organization and this company. And for them, appreciating what we do and them supporting our culture and living off the land and outdoors and having compassion for the animals that we pursue and respect for the resource. That's the culture of Kershaw. We truly appreciate their support. Jim, any closing words? Thank you very much, my man. Um, you know, I had one thing real quick. I wanted to, I wanted to find it. We have a, I was, I was, I was asked to promote a, a coupon code for your, for your viewers and your listeners. Um, so, um, I have, have it right here too. Go ahead. Foul 20. So F O W L 20. And that's good for 20% off on the Kershaw website, um, through October 1st. So that's something that they wanted to provide for you, for your, your listeners. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been it's been wonderful. It's been great just to be able to sit down and chat and kind of nerd out about this. So I appreciate it. And I wanted to say thank you to you for um, the listeners will be able to go back to the intro of this podcast to get more information about the aforementioned discount code VIP code with the foul life on the Kershaw website. Get on there. 
and order the knife. I'm not going to say the knife of your dreams because as soon as you get it, you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I got to have more of these. So they're just going to keep multiplying. I promise you <laughs> that you're not, you got to get one of those drawers that's not just like some weak material on the bottom. You got to have something strong to keep our knife collection in, okay? So if you're going to do it, do it right. Kershaw, thank you very much. Another episode of the Foul Life Podcast. Mr. Jim, thank you so much for being here. We will be back with Jim McNair part two very soon right here at Kershaw Presents the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you all very much. In the meantime, listen to this song, My Foul Life by the awesome rock band 2AM Logic. <laughs>